If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up with me. We're going to look at a few things tonight. If you will, open up with me. I'm so excited for this, man. I've been looking forward to this. Acts chapter 6 and 7. Amen. Yes. Guests in the room are like, they love Acts. We love the whole Bible. Amen. But we get excited about God's Word. We get excited about God's Word. That's what changes our lives is the Word, prayer, the Spirit of the Lord. We get excited about the word in here. And so what we've done, let me recap the series for you for just a moment. We're doing a sermon series titled, I Am the Light. And basically, we've been looking at how Jesus is the light of the world and that he is our hope. Marijuana can't be our hope. Lust can't be our hope. Money can't be our hope because money changes by the day. That Jesus is the hope of the world. And so when we go through a trial, when we go through a storm, like we're going to read of Stephen tonight, Jesus is the light in the midst of our darkness. But not only that. Just as Peyton Wright says in the video each time that it plays, and I love that video. That is, I think, my favorite video we have done. Jesus also commissions believers to be the light of the world, which means simply this. You and I, if we have Christ living in us, are supposed to look different. We're supposed to live different. We're supposed to talk different. And I'll just tell you, man, some of you are in the room tonight, and you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. That's fantastic. Of course, we're going to disagree on some things that the Bible talks about, but we're glad you're here. I'll tell you, as a lost person at 21, John, what I wanted to see most from Christians was this, that they believed it. I just wanted to see Christians live it out. And I went to a lot of places where I saw a whole lot of Christians not living it out, faking it, trying to fake it till they make it, going through the motions. And for me, as a lost person, like, I would have loved it if you would have shared the gospel with me because I would have been at least convinced that you were convinced. But nobody at University of Memphis, not one person, ever shared the gospel with me. Not one. Now, I don't say that like, woe is Daniel. But not one person in the four years I was there, and I transferred from Southwest. <laughs> four years that I was there, three and a half, not one person ever stopped to share the gospel with me. Not one. I know I passed believers. I know I looked lost. My clothes were way too baggy. <laughs> Yes, my wife, I didn't know how to dress, but you could tell I needed something. Like, that boy needs some help. <laughs> Big old sweatpants every day. So I was coaching. I was getting ready to be a PE teacher. Amen. Not one person ever stopped me to say, hey, do you know where your soul is going to spend eternity? Not one. That's why I love going to University of Memphis like we did today, because I get to go share the gospel with people and do what I wish somebody would have done with me. Do what I wish somebody would have done with me. And so for you, man, do you have a desire to share Jesus? Because Jesus says you are the light of the world. We're supposed to live different. We're supposed to look different. And so what we've done in I Am The Light, especially the last two weeks, is we talked about use your voice, which I just want to point out. I was in the Wolf Chase Mall, and I passed the van store, and they had a sticker on their window that said, use your voice. So we're inspiring people. If nothing else, vans is watching us. <laughs> just kidding. I'm probably going to get sued. They didn't copy it from us. We talked about use your voice. We did a training on Wednesday night where all of our life groups came together. Almost 100 people came together on our Wednesday night to learn how to share their faith and defend their faith. We've been talking about Paul in Acts 16 and 17 about sharing the gospel. Well, tonight we're going to take a little bit of a shift. We're going to talk about how to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And we're going to get into it. I want to give you my title. It's this. The title for tonight is What Stephen Died For. If I could give you a title to write down at the top of your notes, and I hope that you are taking notes tonight. The title is What Stephen Died For. And so as we have looked at Use Your Voice, I want to talk about being unashamed. Because as we begin to learn how to share the gospel, as we begin to have a desire to share the gospel, the temptation is to be embarrassed to be associated with Christ. And I know you know what I'm talking about. We're going to have to be real tonight. 
Like, we're going to have to give up this whole, like, oh, I'm never ashamed. Like, I'm never embarrassed to be a Christian. Like, like we got to get past that and admit, hey, sometimes it's hard, right? Like, it's cool to be associated with Christ in here. When we got our ESV study Bibles and we got our beautiful journals and we're all dressed up and we're all worshiping. Like, it's easy to be associated with Christ in here. When you go back to your classroom and they disagree with you on gender, and they disagree with you on what the Bible says about marriage, and they disagree with you on what the Bible says about marijuana or drunkenness, it gets so much challenging to go claim to be associated with Christ out there, does it not? It does. Let's be real. When you're at the gym and you're working out, which I don't know much about right now, because <laughs> for my birthday, plenty of you have brought me sugar cookies. Thank you. I just want to make a public statement. Thank you, but I have enough. <laughs> I got to get right for the summer, man. It's tough, all right? I got to get right. Y'all keep bringing them. I love it, but enough. (laughs) When you're in the gym and somebody passes by, that you see every single time you go to the gym and you know that they don't love Jesus Christ and then they're not living for the Lord and they're not going to church, all of a sudden being associated with Christ is a little bit tougher. So let's get past this whole, I'm never embarrassed, I'm never ashamed. All of us go through this. Every single one of us in here at some point struggles to truly be associated with Jesus Christ, depending on our environment. Here's what I'm going to tell you here in a moment. Sometimes it's not just non-believers that make us ashamed to be with Christ. Sometimes it's the believers. Uh Uh-oh. Here's what I mean. Sometimes when we are truly living on fire for Jesus Christ, there are other believers around us who are apathetic towards Christ and don't really want to live it out. And sometimes when they're not on fire for Christ like you are, they kind of make you feel bad for wanting to pray and wanting to read your Bible and wanting to share your faith. Do they not? Sometimes we are the one that makes others feel bad. And so persecution, rejection can come at us from very different angles. It's not always just an atheist telling you your God isn't real. Sometimes persecution happens from within our almost a godly, but within our Christian communities. If our Christian communities are not godly communities, then we're going to find persecution from those ungodly communities. (laughs) They're going to pressure you. They're going to reject you. They're not going to want to live for Christ the way you are. And so how do we live unashamed? Now, Scripture speaks all about it. There's two incredible passages about this that I want to give you. Here's the first one. The first one is Romans 1.16. Every Christian rapper loves this verse, and rightfully so. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not only that, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10 says this. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Paul says. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Verse 9, he has saved us. He has called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, I love this, before time began. Verse 10, this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And all God's people said, amen. That's stout. So tonight we're going to look at the life of Stephen. Now, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. If you're taking notes, write that down. He is the first one to die for the gospel in Scripture, that his life, truly, he lays it down and he dies. It is powerful. It's victorious. It's also sobering. 
And so tonight I want to look at his life, and I want to see how he was not ashamed of Jesus and how he literally laid his life down. And so if I could give you a sermon in a sentence, it would be this. If Stephen was unashamed to be associated with Jesus in death, we should be unashamed to be associated with Jesus in life. In life. And we have a lot of scripture that we're going to work through tonight. And I'll leave this up here so you can make sure to, if you want to get that in your notes, you can. But tonight we're going to walk through this verse by verse. So we're not going to read the entire uh, narrative at the front end. We're going to kind of walk through it verse by verse, and I'm going to give you a few things to walk away with. So if you will, look with me. At chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. I don't believe verse 1 will be on the screen, but it will pick up on the screen in verse 5. So look with me if you're at Acts 6, and let's start picking this apart. It says this, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, it will be on the screen in just a moment, There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching in the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So look at verse 5. Here comes Stephen. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. It lists the others, of course, but about Stephen, it gives a description that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Skip down to verse 6 with me, if you will. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. God bless you. And a large group, second half of verse 7, a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 8, now, Stephen, it says it again. You want to talk about Stephen's testimony? This man has a resume. Full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Let's pray tonight. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you that your gospel is a gospel that's worth living for, that it's a gospel worth dying for. And Father, we thank you for Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the grave again so that we might have hope. And Lord, we just pray tonight that you would speak. God, we pray that you would speak every word tonight, that you would encourage us, convict us, challenge us. Lord, we pray you would call us to repentance. Call us to action tonight, Lord. Call us to boldness. Call us to courage. Lord, we want to live for you, and we want to be unashamed of your gospel. So, Lord, I pray through Stephen's testimony, ultimately, that you would remind us, remind us of ours in Christ. And so, Lord, we love you. We pray that you would save somebody tonight who doesn't know you. We pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we love you. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. Well, number one, let me give you this. Number one, Stephen's boldness was supernatural. Stephen's boldness was supernatural. Now, before we talk about the persecution he faced, let's talk about the boldness here. Because Stephen is ultimately a deacon, right? Like he is chosen here to serve. He's chosen to wait tables. He's chosen to help with food distribution. And yet he is so full of the spirit of God that it stops Gabby to literally describe how full of grace and truth Stephen is. To the point 
that he is performing signs and wonders among the people. This was a regular occurrence for people in Acts. For the apostles, for those who were living for the Lord, it was a regular occurrence that many miraculous signs and wonders were happening and people were continually getting saved. So you have to understand something. As we talk about boldness, the first thing we learn from Stephen is that this man was connected to Christ. This man was abiding in Christ. This man was grounded in Christ. This man knew the Lord. This is why his boldness was so evident, because he was full of grace and full of truth. So we can't skip over this. I've got seven things for you, but I want to stop on this first one very quickly and just tell you that you live in a culture here in America that is a little bit different than what Stephen was facing, right? We're going to see in a moment that Stephen's going to die over his faith. Thankfully, none of us are going to walk out and drive to cookout and be in the parking lot talking about Jesus and really be afraid for our faith. Like, it can happen. But we don't have endless stories of Memphis, Tennessee, people being murdered for the name of Jesus. We have a lot of crime, but not over the name of Jesus Christ. We have it, some would say, really good with our faith. That we can go to a public university like U of M and share our faith there. So it's a little bit different culturally. So you have to understand this boldness about the gospel. In order to be bold for Christ, it has to be a supernatural boldness. It has to come from the Lord. Like you have to be filled with the Spirit of God in order to be bold. In order to really have a testimony like Stephen, there's no shortcuts. There's no cutting corners. Like it's grounded in this right here. And I can't harp on it enough. I'll say it every single week. Dakota will too. Your boldness for Christ, that measurement of how bold you're willing to be, is not measured by what you say. It's measured by what you do with God's word and with prayer. Ultimately, however, Crazy you're willing to get in prayer is going to amount to your boldness because when you spend time with the Lord, he is the one that strengthens you. He is the one that pours into you. He is the one that fills you up. So when you walk out there to a world that's ready to reject you for the name of Jesus, if you have not been with the Lord and been filled up with the Spirit of God, it's going to be real hard to be bold out there. I'll tell you what. I'll never forget my first time at University of Memphis. I was set out to go share the gospel. I was like, I'm going to be bold. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to walk around the university center. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to ask them how I can pray for them. And I started walking around the university center, and I started looking for people to talk to. And I was like, all right, I got to do this in a way that's not weird. You know, I got to have some icebreakers. Like, I got to notice some cool shoes and say something about their Jordans or something. Like, I got to find some kind of icebreaker. Like, I don't want to just be that guy that's like, do you know the Lord? You know, like, <laughs> I've got to have something. You know, you got to have something, right? We talked about our training. You got to have something. You got to have little icebreakers, culturally relevant. So I saw this guy. Yeah, Jays. I walked up to him. I was like, man, I like your Jays. I think it was some fives. So I was like, I like your Jordan fives, man. It was cool. So I started to talk a little bit. And I was like, can I sit down? Started talking about Golden State. Started talking about Cleveland. This was 2016. Started talking a little bit about LeBron, Seth Curry, and all these kind of things. And I sit down with him, and I'm talking to him. And, and I, I, I'm like, hey, man, could I ask you a question? He's like, yeah. And I was like, man, uh, do you, like, go to church anywhere? Do you have any kind of faith or anything like that? And immediately you feel the conversation shift, right? You ever been there? Right? If you haven't, don't worry, you will. You're sitting there talking about NBA, everything's cool, and then you bring up faith, and they're like, okay, skirt. <laughs> let me get out of this one. And he's like, ah, mm, ah you know, kind of makes some noises. Doesn't really say a word. He's just kind of like, ah, yeah, mm. <laughs> Like, oh, I'll take that as a no, I guess, you know. I don't know how to read that. And so I talked to him a little bit. It's not going well, okay? It's not going well. As a lot of times do when you try to be bold, sometimes it doesn't go well. What you have to trust is that God is still planting seeds. That's why we celebrate the sharing of the gospel just as much as the saving of the gospel. It's not our job to save. It's our job to share. And so I sat there, and I kid you not, I was like, well, man, listen, I would love to pray for you. Is that cool? 
He's like, all right. And I was like, well, let's pray. We bow our heads. We start praying. I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm sharing the whole gospel in this prayer, right? <laughs> like, I'm praying back to the Lord just how good he's been, what Jesus has done for us. And I'm like, man, I'm, just pr- I'm literally praying that my prayer will plant a seed in him. I'm like, Lord, you just use this prayer to encourage him. Maybe he'll hear this. Maybe his heart will be softened. And I, I start thinking, all right, you know, I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to pray for him. And once I open my eyes, maybe he'll be a little bit more open to talking about Jesus. Middle of the university center. I finish this prayer. I open my eyes. And this man is gone. <laughs> and he left his trash. <laughs> it's a true story. Caleb Saunders was with me. Jordan Bowman was with me. This man got up while I was praying, left his plate and his napkin, his trash, and walked away while I was still praying for him. And I was hurt. <laughs> I was like looking around. People were looking at me like, man, that dude over there, he got rejected. He don't even know it. <laughs> He's still praying for that man. Bet he wouldn't be praying if he knew. But I was sitting there, and I was like, man, I'm trying to be bold. I'm trying to see something happen, and yet this guy disappears in the middle of my prayer. And stuff like that will happen to you. Like, you will be rejected. Today, University of Memphis, I got rejected. Stephen's about to be stoned. Like, you will face rejection. But what the Lord taught me, and that I stood up from that UC, I walked out, and what I learned is the Lord is using these seeds, and it's not my job to save anybody, and I can just have joy that I'm going out to share the gospel. One week later, I walk into UC, same table, different guy, pray with him. He gives his life to Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, my goodness, last week I was sitting here discouraged, thinking I'm never going to share the gospel again. This is embarrassing. This is mortifying. This is for pastors, not me. And the very next week, I saw somebody get saved. And so some of you have been rejected for the gospel and you gave up. You might have been one more person away from seeing somebody get saved. Boldness. Boldness is all over scripture. I'll tell you that. Boldness is talked about in Luke 12, 11 to 12. Jesus gives a great promise. Look at this. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. That's Luke chapter 12. At that very hour, the Holy Spirit will teach you what will be said. You know what Stephen's doing? Stephen's living it out. Stephen is in a moment where he has no idea what to do except just cling to the Lord. Just live for the Lord. Share the truth. And the Holy Spirit, it clearly tells you he's full of the Spirit of God. And guess what? The Spirit, in a moment, is going to give him an entire sermon to share. So for you, man, you're not dragged in front of rulers. You're not dragged in front of synagogues and asked about your faith. But I promise you this. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're so worried about getting in these conversations and not having any of the answers that they may ask you. Have you ever stopped to think that the Holy Spirit might give you the answer in that moment? Have you ever stopped to think about that? That quite literally, you're so worried to have a conversation with somebody who is a homosexual. Man, we're surrounded by people who are living in homosexuality. And we're scared to have, have a conversation with them. Like, they are human beings. <laughs> they are human beings. And Christians are scared to have a conversation with them. I've had some of the best conversations with people who are living in homosexuality. And I've ta- sat there and talked to them, and they're like, man, no, no Christians never come up and talk to me. And I'm like, really? Like, yeah, no. Christians, are, they act like they're scared to talk to me, just about life. We have people who believe that racism is real in our nation, and we're scared to have conversation with them to break that racial barrier. <laughs> if Christians don't go out who are filled with the Spirit of God to break racial barriers, who in the world's going to do it? Who in the world's going to do it? Your mom, your dad, some of you, man, if we're going to be honest, you need boldness not to have a conversation with somebody in your class. You need to have some boldness to go have a conversation with somebody in your family. 
I'll be real honest with you. God has called you to your family before he has called you to your class. And for those of us who are getting ready for the summertime, God has called you to your family before he has called you to another country. I'll just tell you right now, I love mission trips, going on one myself. I love it. But God has called you to your family before he's called you to Denver, Colorado. God has called you to your family first. And some of you are right there, like ready to share the gospel. You want to be bold, and all you're missing is that trust. That trust, to trust that the Holy Spirit will fill you and give you the words to say in that very hour. I know that he's talking about being dragged in front of synagogues, but I'm telling you, every conversation I've had with somebody about the gospel, the Holy Spirit has provided everything I needed to say. And he'll do the exact same for you. Not only that, though, I'll turn your attention to Acts 28, when it talks about Paul. These are verses 30 to 31. It says this, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And without hindrance. All boldness. Man, in a, in a society where we're not scared over our lives, we sure are scared to lose everything else for Jesus. We're scared to lose our careers for Jesus because we think our careers are better than Jesus. Let's be honest. Some of us in here, I don't know who this is for. Some of us in here know God is calling us to change our major, but we haven't because we're scared to give it up because we're still holding on to something worldly. But God has clearly told you that you're supposed to make some kind of change, and I don't know what it is. Some of us are holding on to stability and comfort in our lives because we're not willing to trust the Lord Jesus. I'll tell you this. You want to be bold? It's not something you go obtain. It's not a mile marker you hit in your faith. It's trust. Trust. Are you willing to trust Jesus Christ and put yourself in uncomfortable situations for the gospel? Not only that, though, I'll tell you this. Number two, Stephen's faith was attacked. <laughs> so number one, Stephen's boldness was supernatural. He was with the Lord, spent time with the Lord, knew the Lord. His boldness was a Holy Spirit boldness, which is what every single one of us in here need. We need a Holy Spirit kind of boldness. But what happens is very clear. Scripture doesn't play any games. His faith was attacked. Look with me at verses 9 to 15 of chapter 6. Let's keep going. It says, opposition arose, as it always does. Opposition arose from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, and they began to argue with Stephen. This is verse 10. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men. To say, quote, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses. They've thought this through. Who said this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law? For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Oh, no, if we were to lose some of the traditions... It will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Verse 15, one of the most important verses in this. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like that of an angel. If you mark in your Bible, underline that. Stephen's face looked like an angel. That's very important. So as you're taking notes, understand this. Here's what Stephen's on trial for. Here's what he's being accused of. Right? They can't defend themselves against the gospel because the gospel's true. 
It's not Stephen that's a genius. It's that the gospel's true. And it's hard to disprove something that's true. In fact, it's impossible. That's why for 2,000 years, the resurrection can't be disproved. We make up all these reasons as to why it can't, but we never entertain the reason that it might be true. That he was fully man, fully God, rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering death, that he is God. But here's what the charges are against Stephen. If you're taking notes, this won't be on the screen, but write this down. That A, he's rejecting Moses. All right, so here's one of the charges. Hey, you're blaspheming against Moses. You're blaspheming against the law. Right, you're going against our customs. You're going against what we know to be true. You're rejecting the great Moses and the great law that God gave him. That's charge one. Here's charge two. He's rejecting the temple. Right? It's the big. They're saying that he is rejecting the place of worship and that Jesus of Nazareth would tear down this place. What Stephen is trying to get them to see desperately is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. That Jesus has fulfilled the law. That the law they're so desperately clinging to that they can't keep it, but Jesus did for them. And because he kept it, he was sinless. He died on the cross for every single one of their sins. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Understand this. They're offended that somebody paid for their sins. That's how far religion and tradition has taken them. They believe that Jesus is against them, that Jesus would destroy the temple. When in actuality, remember what Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. That Jesus, his temple, died, was buried, and three days later, God rose it. And Jesus came right out of that tomb, raising the temple. And so Stephen is quite literally fighting for the presence of God. He's telling them that God's presence does not dwell in a temple because the veil has been torn, which means you don't have to go to the temple to be with God. God, his presence, is accessible to you at all times wherever you go. Wherever you go, understand the crookedness in this text because some of us in this room will miss it. He's fighting for them to see that their sins have been paid for, that they can't keep the law so someone perfect did. And then he's fighting to persuade them that God's presence is not inaccessible to them in a temple behind a veil, but that the veil has been torn and they can be with God right here, right now. And they're furious. They're shook. They're angry. They're mad. They're like, I can't do this. This is too much for me. Stephen's fighting for the true gospel and they want to kill him. In the name of God, they've got it so backwards. They've got it so backwards. So his faith comes under attack. And when they can't stand up against him, they manipulate it. And they get people to bring, up, bring about false charges against him. I want to ask you something, college students. Are you willing to have a faith that might come under attack? Are you willing to have a faith that might come under attack? Are you willing to stand for the true gospel, even if those around you don't want to hear it? In love, with genuineness, with gentleness, in love. Because, man, as you live in this world, as we, you and I grow up in America, our faith is going to continually be attacked. And that's just a reality. The great thing for us, Matthew, is that we get to cling to James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously. Another promise that if you need wisdom, God will provide it. Are you willing to have a faith that may come under attack? Because when we look at Acts, they were stoned, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked. Paul went through everything you could go through all for the sake of the gospel. My great fear 
is that Stephen's body was stoned for the gospel. And some of us in here, we won't even allow our reputation to be stoned for the gospel. And I'm included. If we had our steps tonight, I'd start walking down them. Just to come down there. I'm the same way. When I go around people from high school, and sometimes I get real tense, and my heart starts beating, and the Lord tells me to share the gospel with them, and I'm like, ah, I don't know, Lord. I don't know if this is the time. I don't know if this is the place, Lord. I start talking myself out of it. Man, I know you know. I've been there. I, I get it. Palms sweaty. Start getting worried. Start getting anxious. And the Spirit's telling you, hey, share the gospel with them. And you're afraid that your faith might come under attack. If you stand for Jesus, your faith will come under attack. But I promise you this, God will be faithful through any attack. Even if people bring false charges against you, guess what? Let's say worst case scenario, somebody brings false charges against you, at least you would know what it was like to be Jesus. At least I would know what it's like to be Jesus. Daniel, that's hard to live out. It's easy to say, I know it is. But we cannot find ourselves where these religious people are, where we are worshiping a tradition more than we are worshiping the true God. What I love is when it talks about the face of an angel, we have to go back to Exodus 34. And look at Moses in this moment. Look at this. This is verse 29. It says this. Exodus 34, verse 29. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near, but Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord has told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And after he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. Look at this. The Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Can I tell you something, college students? Something crazy about this text. They're so worried that Stephen's going to reject Moses. But Stephen's face is the one that looks like the angel. They're so worried about defending Moses, yet can I make a great argument to you? It's Stephen who is the one that actually looks like Moses in this moment. That they are killing the one who actually looks like the one they think they're defending. Moses was with the Lord and his face shined bright. Stephen has been with the Lord. He's full of the spirit of God and his face looks like that of an angel. Sometimes no matter what you say, your faith is gonna come under attack, but I promise you this, God will be faithful. God will be faithful. Stephen's under the same charges they brought Jesus. Same charges. Do you know that? It says this in Matthew 26, 59 and 61. The chief priest, this is going back to Jesus here at the end of his life before he was crucified. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. And aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ did not have a single sin? Amen. He did not have a single sin. He was sinless. He was blameless. And it says they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward blaspheming in the name of Jesus. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. What is it for you that you're scared to lose in the name of Jesus? 
Every believer has to have to ask that question. Every believer has to ask the question, what am I scared to lose for the name of Jesus? And then ask yourself, is it really worth it over Jesus? Would you really want that over the name and the person of Jesus? But not only that, I'll give you number three. Stephen's confidence was scriptural. Stephen's confidence was scriptural. So Stephen comes out, and here's what he does. He has these charges against him. All he's been doing has been living for the Lord, full of grace, full of power. He has false charges against him. And when he comes out, and I'm not going to read it all because it's the longest speech in the New Testament. right? It's, uh, Stephen's speech here, his sermon, is the longest one. What Stephen does in chapter 7, look at chapter 7 at the very first verse. I'm going to show it to him. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I would encourage you to go home this week and read this. Verse 7 says this, chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things true? The high priest asked. Here's Stephen's reply. I'm going to just give you the first sentence. Brothers and fathers. He identifies himself with them. Then he says, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. And from there, in the next 50 verses, the next 50 verses, Stephen recites the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. Every big moment that happened, from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Solomon building the temple, every single one, he goes through the entire Old Testament leading up to Jesus Christ. All of it. These experts in the law, these who are supposed to have it all figured out, the religious leaders who have all the answers, and yet it's Stephen, the deacon, the food distributor, to the widows, who is the one that recaps the entire Old Testament. I want to ask you a question. If you're not confident in your faith, how well do you know Scripture? How well do you know this word? And I say that from a humble place because some of you have not been doing Christianity that long. Some of you gave your life to Jesus recently, and you're still figuring this out. Man, praise God. When I first got saved, I didn't know any scripture except Daniel and the lion's den. Because he has a beautiful name. It's a beautiful story. That's all I knew. When I came to review for the first time, my Bible had a picture of Noah's Ark on it. It was a VBS Bible in 2005. Some of y'all weren't even born in 2005 when I had a Bible from back then. And I walked in. That's what I had. That's what I knew. And then, of course, a year later, I started dating my future wife, who knew so much more about Scripture than I did, <laughs> knew every single story of this book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I love Solomon. I'm like, I don't have a clue who Solomon is, but <laughs> I love him. I can remember being an early Christian the first six months in, and I'd ask people what their favorite book of the Bible was, and they'd say Acts. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Acts is great. I never read Acts. <laughs> and now, because of the Spirit of God, I get to preach it. Years later, that's how good the Lord is. And I'll tell you, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because the Lord got a hold of me, and I started wanting to read this every single day. And what's amazing is I never, ever had a picture of the Bible as a whole. Some of you have no idea, like, as a whole. You know bits and pieces. You know some verses. You know some stories. That's all I had. What's amazing is now, years later, I have a full picture. I don't know everything in this Bible, but I have a full picture of the narrative of God's redemption story to humanity. That's what Stephen had. Stephen knew this. Like, he knew God's word. He knew what God had done. He knew God's character. He knew God's nature. So when it came time to share with them the gospel of Yahweh, he knew it. He knew it. Some of you don't have confidence because you don't know it. Like, you can't go out there and live out your faith because you don't know the Bible that talks about faith in him. 
And man, I don't say that to beat you up, but just understand, if you're new to this and you got saved a month ago and you're still learning it, praise God, keep going. God's got a plan for you. Man, and it's so cool to see people learning the Bible for the first time. And you know what? If you were not living for the Lord for a long time and you just recently got right and you're learning this and you're getting in it, man, praise God for that. But let me speak to the other audience for a moment. Of college students in the room. There's a lot of you in the room who have one foot in and one foot out, and you have for a long time. I don't know who you are, but you do. And this is what I mean. You've had all the opportunities in the world to learn this. And some of you know it, but you struggle to live it out. Some of you have been to all the beach weeks, all the camps, all the mission trips. You've had all the training. Your parents know the Lord. They've taught you. They've disciplined you. You've had all the opportunities, and yet you still don't know this to the point where you're confident in it. Is God doing anything in your heart? to stir you to want to read this. Because this is not just a part of my life. This is my life. I want it to be my life. This has everything I need. It has everything you need. And so if you want to know where to start, go home and start tonight. The more you get scripture in you, the more scripture will come out of you. And when you stand before people out there in the world, you'll know what to say because you know the word, but there's no shortcuts. So you got to read it. That's why I believe God gave us the Bible, because there ain't no shortcuts. There's no streaming service. There's no putting it on. I guess you can do audio Bible 2.5 speed. It's the word dwelling it. Sadly, instead of God's word being the purpose of our life, we settle for it being a portion of our life. Instead of it being the purpose of our life, we settle for it being a portion of our life. And so for you, is this something you're willing to make your life? Start tonight. Start knowing this. Because as your confidence grows in Scripture, your confidence will grow to be bold. Your confidence will grow to share the gospel. I promise you, your confidence will grow to share the gospel. I know you're still writing. I'm going to give you a moment. So we see the charges that are brought to Stephen. We see the accusations. And I'm going to give you these last three as we look at Stephen's life. Look with me. Starting in verse 51 here of chapter 7. Stephen goes, I encourage you to read it on your own. He goes through the entire Old Testament. And then he addresses the people listening. And man, it's stout. I'll tell you what. Listen, it's stout. This is what he had to say to him. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. (laughs) All right, listen. I'm not recommending that at U of M. And the reason why stiff-necked is all through the scripture is because, right, stiff-necked, like not being able to move, the idols they would worship, the statues were stiff. They wouldn't move. And when they would worship false gods, they would begin to look like those false gods, just caught up in religion, just caught up in being fake. Those gods, those statues they worshiped, Keegan, they were not alive. They were dead, and they started to look stiff-necked because they were becoming what they were worshiping. See, whatever you worship, that's what you'll become. If you worship Jesus, you will become more like Jesus. If you worship the culture, you'll become more like the culture. They worship statues and idols, and they began to look like those statues and those idols, stiff. He calls them stiff-necked. And then he says this, another thing that's unique to our culture. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Understand this. I put this down. An uncircumcised heart means religious activity for God, but no internal intimacy with God. That's what that means. 
He's referencing all the prophets in the Old Testament. He means this. He means that you have religious activity for God, but you lack internal intimacy with God. It means you've been going through the motions for a long time, but your heart's missing the true point of it. Then he says this, still in 51. He says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. And so number four, Stephen's heart was broken. As Stephen speaks to them, you're going to see this. This is coming from a place of love. Stephen's heart was broken. And his heart was broken for these people that he was sharing the gospel with. His heart was absolutely broken, just as Dakota preached on two weeks ago. To see them living in sin absolutely breaks his heart. So let me ask you two questions. Are you broken over the sin of other people in your life? If you're not, it's probably because you're not broken over your own sin yet. And I say that just as much for me as for you. Your family, your loved ones, when you see them in sin, does it break your heart to the point where you're willing to tell them about the gospel? What's up, DJ? Because, man, I'll tell you something. If we're scared to share the gospel with people, it's because we don't have a realistic view of heaven and hell. If we're scared to tell people about Jesus, we lack a real view of heaven and hell. Either we don't believe heaven is as glorious as it is, or we don't believe hell is as awful as it is. Because when you've been in God's presence, you can never imagine not being in his presence, which is exactly what hell is. And Stephen's heart's broken. When he looks at them, he sees them worshiping a religion. Is your heart broken? And that's why he calls them out about their sin. And that's why he tells them, hey, you need Jesus. But not only that, it keeps going. Look with me at verses 44. When they heard these things, here's what happened. Spoiler alert, they do not respond well. They do not respond well to this. It says, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Which is very fascinating since hell is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're gnashing their teeth at the gospel. Verse 55, Stephen, again, full of the Holy Spirit. His words are not out of a bitterness or out of a worldliness. His words are out of love. He is full of the Holy Spirit of God in this moment. Gazed into heaven. I love this. This is one of the best moments in, in Acts. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Number five, Stephen saw the heavens opened. Stephen saw the heavens open. Can you imagine? I mean, put yourself in, your, in his shoes for a moment. Or his sandals, I guess. Can you imagine being in a place where people are so angry at you over the gospel that they're gnashing their teeth and you look up and you see heaven open? Can you imagine standing up for Jesus, hoping it gets you to a place where you're supposed to be like, hey, I'm clinging to my faith, and then you look up and you actually see Jesus? What I love is, as I was studying this, something I found said this. This is crazy. I'm telling you, don't miss this. This is so cool. 
the description of Jesus as the Son of Man is unusual outside of the Gospels. Remember, in the Gospels, he had three titles, Son of Man, Son of God, and Son of David. And Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man often, but oftentimes in Scripture, others don't describe him as the Son of Man. That's not a term that is used a lot after the Gospels. This is unusual. So when Stephen says Son of Man, you have to understand he is referencing Jesus' humanity. He is seeing Jesus in heaven and realizing that the Son of Man can relate. That because of his suffering, the suffering servant, the one who was just on trial, the one who they just nailed to a tree for the sins of the world, he's looking up at him and he sees that Jesus relates to what I'm going through right now. He looks up and he sees that Jesus came to this world when those who would hate him. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus was falsely accused. He suffered for me. And he looks up and he calls him the son of man. Jesus relates to every suffering and every persecution you're going to experience from your family. If you are lied about, if people manipulate and twist your words when you share the true gospel, Jesus relates and Jesus knows exactly what that trial is like. You're so afraid of trials, but I got news for you, college students. I'm so afraid of trials, but I got news. Jesus relates to every single trial we go through because he was the one that was on trial for your sins and for my sins. And he died and he rose from the grave. It says this, so it keeps going. He sees the one who suffered and was vindicated by God. Luke 9, verse 22 says this. Jesus told them, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and be raised on the, last, on the third day. He sees Jesus standing. Nico. Normally in Scripture, when Jesus is referenced by the right hand of God, he's sitting. Did you know that? There's countless Scriptures that talk about it. Mark 14, 62 says this, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man. Look at this, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So why is he standing? He's supposed to be sitting, yet Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus standing and I love this because one of, the, one of the commentaries that I was studying said this. This explains why the Son of Man was standing instead of sitting. He is standing because he's ready to advocate on Stephen's behalf. He's standing because he's ready to be the mediator between Stephen and the Father. Remember, Jesus is your attorney. Jesus is your lawyer. That when you go to heaven and you have to answer for your sins to the Father, it is Jesus who stands in between and says, hey, I purchased them. I paid for them. They put their faith in me. They repented of my sins. Father, it is my blood that covers them. And so this amazing picture of Jesus standing because he's ready for Stephen to come to heaven because Jesus is going to be standing on Stephen's side in order to tell the father that, hey, Stephen is getting in. And I want to tell you, when you die, none of those clothes that you want are going to be there. None of those cars are going to be there. Your career ain't going to be there. When you die, your loved ones will not be there in that moment when you stand in front of the Father. Nothing in this world will be there. The speaker will not be there. Your friends won't be there. Your boyfriend and your girlfriend won't be there. There will be nobody else and nothing else right there when you die and you stand before the Father. But if all you have is Jesus Christ, you have enough. You have enough. You have enough. That's the picture that's happening. Can you imagine being stoned and looking up and seeing Jesus standing ready to advocate on your behalf? Saying, hey, he couldn't do it, but I did it for him, and he accepted my gift, the free gift 
of eternal life. And you getting into heaven, not based on anything that you did, not your church attendance, not what you wear, but your faith in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? Jesus will stand for you too, believer. That when you go out there in the world, you have a reason to be bold. You have a reason to go share the gospel because Jesus will stand for you. That if your faith is in Christ, that if you have trusted Christ, he is the mediator between you and the Father. And there's nothing scarier you're going to come in contact with than God Almighty. And I say that from a reverent standpoint. So if you know Jesus and you are a Savior, understand this great truth from the Scripture. If you can stand before God because of Jesus Christ, there is nobody in this world you cannot stand in front of. Why are you and I so scared to tell people about Jesus? Why? Why are you and I so scared to tell our families about Jesus? Why are we so scared to tell our apathetic Christian friends that they're not really living for God? Why are we so scared? Don't fear those who harm the body. Fear those who harm the soul. And can't nobody on this earth get to your soul. Not a single one of them. I can't imagine in this moment looking up and seeing heaven, but there's more. And I got to go quick. Stay with me on this narrative. I'm telling you, don't miss this. I'm praying that this opens some of your hearts to who Jesus truly is tonight. Look with me at verse 57. Here's what happens next. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now let me remind you about stonings because most of us in here haven't seen it, that's when people pick up rocks and throw them at you until you die. Let's remember how horrific this death was. Can you imagine being laid out and people taking off their clothes in order to throw stones better and hitting you with stones over and over and over? Can you imagine? I'm going to get graphic for a minute. Can you imagine hearing your bones break because of those stones? And you're laying there and you know the only reason I'm down here being stoned is because I'm associated with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody dragging you out on appling and stoning you for the name of Jesus? I've thought about it before if I found myself in that position. Would I deny Jesus or would I still claim him? And they drag him out to be stoned all because he's with Jesus. And they lay their clothes at a young man named Saul. Verse 59, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I can't imagine being stoned for Jesus and looking up and giving my spirit to him. Just as Jesus on the cross told the Father, he lifted up his spirit. Stephen lifts up his spirit, but that's not the last thing he does, though. Look at this, verse 60, the last one. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Some of us in this room won't forgive people because of the smallest, tiniest little drama and little petty arguments and disagreements. And Stephen is here praying for those who are stoning him. The same allusion to Jesus praying in Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus prays on the cross, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. 
number six is Stephen's cry was for forgiveness for those killing him. Stephen's cry was for forgiveness for those killing him. His last words were for, was for forgiveness of those who were executing him. And what I love is Saul is a witness. Some of you in here know Saul, some of you don't. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. We know Saul's testimony. Me and Dakota preached two weeks as he was a missionary. But here he's still killing Christians. I want you to understand, the man who wrote half the New Testament, the man who had a radical conversion to Christianity, watched this happen and agreed with it before he knew Jesus, when he was living as a murderer. And it tells us, that the clothes were laid at his feet as he watched the stoning. So you understand this. This is no coincidence. This is not just putting it here, telling you Saul witnessed this for no reason. I would dare argue that this right here, Stephen's death, planted a seed with Saul. I don't know what happened in his heart. I don't know what happened in his life until he got saved. But I know this. Scripture is preparing us for what happens in Acts 9. When Saul gets saved, he becomes Paul, and he writes half the New Testament. Can I tell you how crazy it must have been for Saul to stand there murdering Christians and hear Stephen pray, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Because when Saul gets saved, he writes half the New Testament, and it transforms the world. Can I ask you, what if your trial is not even about you? What if your storm and your battle is not even about you, but it's about the people, the lost people who might be watching? What if how you handle a storm, how you handle persecution leads to somebody else getting saved later? Would it be worth it? Oh, would it be worth it? But when we get in the storm, we make it out to be all about us. Woe is me. I've got such a hard life. I've got such a hard time. But Jesus might be using it for somebody else to see. Later, Paul gets saved and he writes half the New Testament. And my last thing is just this. It's a closing one. Number seven, Stephen lived unashamed and he died victoriously. Stephen lived unashamed and he died victoriously. I will leave you with a quote that I found as I was studying this text that I think is one of the most beautiful quotes. I'll give you a moment. I'm still, I know you're still writing that down. I want you to make sure you walk away with this quote on this passage. It says, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. The proper posture for a witness is a standing posture. Stephen, condemned by an earthly court, appeals for vindication to a heavenly court. And his vindicator in that supreme court is Jesus, who stands at God's right hand as Stephen's advocate. Stephen lived unashamed, and he died victoriously. College students, I'll ask you, how are you living? Are you living unashamed? And how will you die? You might not know the way, you might not know the when, but will you die? honoring Christ, ready to go into heaven.